0: Welcome, everybody, to a Baseball America podcast. I'm John Manuel. We've got a cast of thousands. Obviously, we sound a little bit different this week. We have a little round table here. We've got Jim Callis via Skype from Chicagoland, Connor Glassy, and Nathan Rohde also here, and Aaron, Aaron fit on a plane. We could not uh, squeeze in the podcast before Aaron uh, <laughs> left back for California. But we're going to talk 2012 draft here on the Baseball America podcast, and we're just going to dive right into it, Jim. Um. You did the over overview, and you're here for a limited time, so we'll have you talk at the, a little bit more at the beginning of the podcast. But uh, you did our overview story in the most recent college preview issue with the early draft preview section. A lot of that's already online at baseballamerica.com. I believe it's actually all online. But Jim, uh, this draft class, we always rate draft classes. I, I mentioned to you the other day, I think that it's, it feels like scouting directors either love a class and feel like it's epic or they hate a class. <laughs> Very little in between. This to me feels like it's almost a schizophrenic draft. They like the high school class; they really don't like the college class. Is that an oversimplification, or is that a pretty accurate reflection of the, the industry consensus here in, in February?
1: No, I think that's pretty accurate. I think you know, I think one reason this draft doesn't blow people away is in comparison to last year's draft, which might have been the best draft in, in a decade in terms of talent. Both in terms, of you had seven guys who were legitimate number one type of talents. And you had all kinds of depth, you know, especially on the college side, which is unusual, because the major league teams are so aggressive in signing high school talent. I think, you know, if we were using the 20 to 80 scale, I'd probably put a 45 on this draft. Uh, and I think that the strength of it is, as you said, the high school crop. I think the college crop drops off pretty quick, especially uh, on the position player side. But there's a nice balance on the high school side. Last year, it was just an unusual draft, and then you had everything. You had a ton of college pitchers. You had an unusual amount of college hitters, and you had high school hitters and pitchers too. This year, it, it weights towards the high school side.
0: And that's true. Less so at the top of the draft, I guess, because there's a there's a top five, and you and I talked about like our top 100. Correct me if I'm wrong. There's six of the top nine of those guys are college players. We do feel like there's a pretty good pretty big gap after that. But let's talk about the top 10. Uh, all four of us. Um, I guess, Jim, maybe you can talk a little bit about the fact that uh, there are some college position players we feel like, you know, if the draft were to go on right now, would go off in those first 10 picks. uh, Guys like Victor Roach, Mike Zanino, and uh, Devin Marrero, obviously. Uh, To me, especially Marrero and Zanino, are threats to go first overall because they are college position players at premium up the middle spots.
1: No, I agree. I mean, and I actually – I wouldn't put Roach in the same class. I, mean, I know we have Roach ranked number nine, and I think that's a fair ranking. But to me, you, know, you have the top five players in the draft right now, You know, alphabetical order, Appel, Buxton, Giolito, Morero and Zanino. And I think there's everybody else. You know, Every other college player behind Marrero and Zanino you – know, I just did our All-America teams, which we which, are scouting reports. Uh, talked a lot of directors about these guys, and there's a huge question marks. You know, Victor Roach is big-time power. There's also concerns about holes in his swing. Capes seem to adjust to him, and he didn't adjust back last summer. You know, Stephen Piscotty you know, was very good on the cape, but how much power is he going to have? You know, is he going to stay at third base? You know, Travis Jankowski, another guy who had a great cape, but you know, how much pops does he really have? I think he has something like 14 extra base hits in two seasons at Stony Brook. You know, is he going to be enough of an impact with the bat? So, uh, you know, I think after those top five, you know, everything else is still really sorting itself out. Um, you do have – it is rare this year, and you have two things we didn't have last year, in that you have a legitimate shortstop prospect from college in Devin Marrero, and you have a, a fabulous catching prospect in Mike Zanino, which were about the only two things last year's draft class didn't contain. But after that, it's, it's – kind of guys are all over the place on the hitters.
0: And Nathan and Connor, you guys are mostly in charge of our high school rankings. Um, we had a late switch, I guess you'd say, in the high school rankings at the top. Um, We do have uh, uh, Buxton and Giolito that Jim has already talked about. Both of them are factors at the number one overall pick. It appears, though, that Giolito, we had Buxton ahead because it's a little bit more rare, five-tool center fielder, Um, but now we've got Lucas Giolito as our top-ranked high school pitcher. What sets these two guys apart? Maybe if one of you guys want to take Buxton and one takes Giolito, what sets them apart from their high school peers in this class?
2: to make them the top two guys? Connor? Yeah, well, you know, when we first did our high school top 100, those were the top two guys, and it was really, we went back and forth with which one to rank higher, and it almost came down to splitting hairs, because they're both, you know, up there at the top, obviously. Um, For Buxton, I mean, he's just a, he's a five-tool guy. He's loaded with tools, he's athletic, he plays quarterback for his high school football team, Um, you know, a speed guy that can stay in center field, that has projectable power, he's got a... Cannon for an arm. He's got. He's got all the tools that scouts look for. Um, so it was really close between them. We at first went with went with Buxton number one just because, like you said, we thought the the five tool package is more rare than the the hard throwing right hander. But um, you know, it's kind of a one one a situation. I think. Sure. sure. It
0: it sounds is- like Giolito, uh, Nathan. We're going to get a chance to see him up close here in the uh, March in the National High School Invitational. Which we'll talk more about at baseball America, I'm sure during the spring. Pretty excited about that tournament. And Nathan basically is the brains behind that, so we'll talk more about that. But but Giolito didn't seem like he seemed like he had as good an off season, I guess, as a high school pitcher can have. He
3: really did. And that's the like the thing, like it was one and one A uh when we did it with Buxton and then, then Giolito. And it's still kind of you can go back and forth and it is splitting hairs, but last summer Giolito was a very good right-handed, hard-throwing pitcher, a guy that we see you know, pretty often. I mean, he was still setting himself apart plenty from the other guys in the class, but he still was kind of that common, hard-throwing right-hander. But it sounds like in the offseason, he took even more of a step forward. So now, instead of just sitting 92, 94, touching 95, 96, now he's sitting 94, 96, touching 99, reportedly. So... Between seeing him last summer and now when we did redid this list, his long toss program, his strength and conditioning, has allowed him to find that velocity at a higher level and more consistently. And it sounds like his secondary stuff has also taken a step forward where you saw flashes of it last summer. Now it seems like it's getting a little more consistent, which is really setting him apart from the class.
2: Yeah, I mean, when when we send out our ballots for all American team, we also ask the scouting directors to list best tools, and he got votes for best fastball, best breaking ball, and best changeup. Who won best breaking ball? Was it Max Freed?
3: Can't remember. I don't think we finalized it yet because it's going in the high school preview. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right.
2: That's, that's right. right. But I mean, he he did get votes for all three of those, and you know, as and closest the top to guy. the big leagues, probably right. And and you know, his stuff sets him apart, but he also has a great work ethic. He's smart, and he's young for his class. He's one of the guys that's not going to be 18 until after the draft.
0: And uh, Aaron's not here, so I want to talk a little bit about the college class because it's the weakest part. I, I think there are a few intriguing players. Jim, you mentioned one of them to me is Travis Janikowski, guy who really blew up in the cape. Um, he sounds an awful lot like uh, uh, he doesn't play football, so he's not as athletic maybe as Matt Caesar, but he sounds to me like a Matt Caesar type, his left-handed hitting, slashing center fielder where I think people are just questioning just how much impact there is in the bat, but he can really run, and he's a left-handed bat. That certainly seems to help. His profile, it's a center field profile, and just reading the feature that our own Jim Schoener did on him, it was a good feature, it was pretty informative. This is a guy who really, Stony Brook was his only Division One offer, and he was more highly recruited in football. where He was like a wide receiver safety type. Um, so the speed's legit, the athleticism's legit. But the other guy who's kind of like the anti- Janikowski to me is Kenny DeKroger. I'm gonna be really watching. I think we're all gonna watch Stanford. Stanford's our preseason number two. I think a lot of people listening, and we could maybe dovetail this into Lance McCullers Jr. too. A year ago, if we did this podcast for the 2012, our number one college player would have been Kenny DeKroger. Our number he might have been number two behind his own teammate Mark Appel. But our number one high school guy or close to it would have been Lance McCullers Jr. And neither of those guys are really, I think, factors at the top, and it's not that they've changed. And DeKroger was a second round pick at a high school. We're talking about a guy who might not even be the shortstop at Stanford this spring. He might lose his job to Lonnie Coppola. And uh, and then you've got a guy in McCullers who, correct me if I'm wrong, Nathan, he's not even going to be in his weekend rotation for his high school team. I guess that's by design. He doesn't pitch very much for his high
3: school team. They do limit his innings there. I shouldn't say weekend rotation. They start and play twice <laughs> a week, Tops. But he relieves, does he not? Well, I think he's gonna. he starts for them now. Early on in his career, they did keep him in a relief role to keep his innings, innings down because the coaching staff they have there is very conscious of pitching at the next level. Uh, you know, Richie Warren is the head coach, and you know, Jeff, Gets, and, is the Jeff coach Gets is the pitching coach. Who you know, former top pick prospect got hurt, so now they have a throwing program at Tampa Jesuit and a coaching staff that is very conscious of you know, there's more to baseball than just you know, winning a state title or a national championship. So while they do compete at that level they are aware that they don't want to sacrifice a kid's health and future just to get that. So they limit Lance McCullers' innings. He does start from them now, but I'm sure they're still going to keep somewhat of a tight leash on him. And I think uh, you know the family, with his dad being a former big leader, also plays a role in that as well. Sure. And Connor, one other thing on the college
0: track that I mentioned a little bit is yeah, there's no college players from Southern California on our top 100 (laughs) combined list. There's one, I believe, on our college top 100, which is Scott Griggs, an erratic right-hander at UCLA. He's got big stuff. Yeah. But it's an epically bad year
2: for college players in Southern California. What gives? Well, it's, it is. It's It's historically bad down there. I mean, the last time a Southern California college didn't have a first-round pick was 1983. And I think it's a safe bet for that to happen again this year, like you mentioned, with nobody in our overall top 100. Um, as, as a side note on that, I did – that research using our all-time draft database. And it's funny, that 1983 first round actually has some other ties to this year's draft. The second overall pick was Kurt Stillwell, who now works for the Boris Corporation. I see him out at all the, all the showcases. Yeah. And uh, the fourth overall pick was Eddie Williams, yeah. whose son Trey is 27th on our list. Um, but it's pretty easy to see why the SoCal crop is down. I mean, you go back three years, and that wasn't a great, Southern California high school class, and all those guys signed. I mean, Skaggs, Matt Davidson, Matt Hobgood, Jonathan Singleton, those guys all signed out of high school, so none of them ended up in college. Yeah, but, John,
0: um, Jonathan Singleton's at Long Beach State, mm-hmm. like he's supposed to go. He's probably yeah. in this draft. Uh, he's sure, this a lot of those guys draft.
2: made uh, made Jim's column, I think. Skaggs and Singleton did, at least, for the All-American team. That's right. The What If team. But, um, yeah. you know, the, the SoCal college team is down, but uh, there's obviously always – a good high school class down there. And then NorCal College is actually pretty loaded this year.
0: NorCal colleges are loaded, not just Stanford, but also you some prospects at Cal. You got Kyle Zimmer over at San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, St. Mary's. Guys at Mary's. Uh, so you've definitely got, and, and of course, my deep sleeper senior, Kyle Bearclaw. I love Kyle Bearclaw. <laughs> yeah. I've always loved Kyle name. Bearclaw. It is a great name. Bearclaws are delicious. <laughs> <laughs> That's just a fact. Uh, it's a Baseball America podcast with John, Jim, Nathan, and Connor. Jim, uh, the other big issue of this year's draft obviously is going to be the CBA. We're not calling them slots anymore. We're calling them like your basically your bonus. Oh, what's your phrase? I keep forgetting it. Bonus valuation.
1: I've all pick values.
0: Pick what value. The
1: CBA calls them.
0: Okay, pick values. Then we have every team's going to have their bonus pool. The bonus pools are not a hundred percent set. But one thing you laid out uh, to me, whether it was text or email the other day. Um, basically, the Minnesota Twins are probably going to have the, the biggest uh, pool uh, for this draft. And the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim are going to have the smallest pool. And the difference between those two clubs' pool, the gap is enormous.
1: It is. You know, the Twins you know, pick second, so they get $6.2 million in, in pick value for the number two overall pick. And where they move ahead of the Astros is by getting two high picks for Michael Kadire. The Twins are going to have $12.4 million as their assigned pool value for the first 10 rounds. The Angels, who, as we all know, went out and signed Albert Pujols and C.J. Wilson this offseason, don't pick until the third round. The Angels will have $1.7 in pick value in the first 10 rounds. And I don't care if you have the best scouts in the world, there's only so much damage you can do for $1.7 million. And the answer is you're not going to be able to do very much.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so the Angels' farm system is going to lose Mike Trout. Uh, to the big leagues. They they might graduate. They'll probably Garrett, graduate Garrett Richards, their right. third prospect. might graduate one or two other guys. But that farm system is headed for White Soxville, is what we're talking about here. It's going to be a rough farm system. So, unless, the Angels
1: and, have been inconsistent, John, with how they've spent on the draft. You know, they've, been, they've been aggressive some years, unaggressive not. But what this new CBA does is it, it, it gets rid of aggression or non-aggression. The Angels don't have any choice. Where in the past, you know, maybe they could say, Well, look, you know, our farm system needs some help. We're going to lose Trout and Richards. Our depth isn't what it used to be. You know, even though we don't have picks in the first two rounds, we'll give our third rounder 1.5 and our fourth rounder a million. We'll be really aggressive. You know, they gave Mark Trumbo a seven figure bonus in the teens years ago, uh, for instance. Right. They can't do that anymore. Or they could, but they'd incur such huge penalties that it wouldn't be worth it. You know, know, if the the Angels go 15% over 1.7 million, which is, I, I guess, if they spent. What, $2 million on the draft Right. In the first 10 rounds of the draft? They lose two first-round picks, so they, they, they just can't afford to do that. And in past
0: years, they could have decided, okay, we're going to go crazy in Latin America this offseason, in the summer period, and there's a cap there too. So uh, what other changes do we see? Uh, obviously, the CBA changed a lot of things, but just from talking to some scouting directors already, Jim, have they found any loopholes they're talking about, or what's your, how do they sense these changes are going to play out for 2012?
1: There really aren't any loopholes. I mean, because you lose the pick value for a choice, if you don't sign that choice, it's not simply a matter of saying, okay, we're not going to sign our first rounder where that pick's worth $2 million. we'll give it to our third rounder and our fourth rounder. You can't do that. You can create money by signing guys for below pick value, but you can't just you know, punt a total pick. There's really no way around it. I do think you'll see teams willing to go – you know, just shy of 5% over their pick value because you just have to pay a minor tax. That won't kill anybody. But you're, you're pretty much going to be locked into your pick values. And I, I, from talking to people, the, the two things I sense, talking to agents and teams, the two things I sense is, one, everybody agrees this year is going to be kind of a feeling-out process. Nobody's sure how it's going to play out. I think it's going to be a lot like 2007, which was the first year, the last CBA. and You had you had some new rules. You know, most The most significant one was the signing deadline and you had at the same time be cut the old slots, the recommendations they make to the teams, and you had players holding out to the deadline just to get the, the, the previous slot. And then everybody found out, like, hey, the longer we wait, the more money we get. And I think, I think you're going to see that happen this year too. Not that the teams are necessarily going to have the money, with the penalties are in place. But I do think you will have players waiting until July 13th, which is the deadline It's moved up a year this year, to see if, if teams can come up with a way to give them money. And the other consensus is when we first heard about these changes in November, the initial reaction was man, you know, all the high school players who don't go in the first round or so are going to wind up going to college. And now I think there's more optimism. I, I do think there's a feeling you know, not as many high school players will sign. You, you won't be able to give you know, Brian Brickhouse a million and a half or Daniel Norris two million when they don't go in the first round or sandwich round. Uh, or if you can, you really have to jump through a lot of hoops. You're not going to be able to sign. Everybody who might have signed under the old rules but there's still going to be a number of talented high school players who don't go in the first round or the sandwich round who will sign. You maybe instead of signing for a million dollars, they sign for seven fifty. Maybe instead of seven fifty, it's five hundred. So, so teams aren't uh, aren't quite as worried as maybe they were two months ago that they're not going to be able to sign as many high school players. I do think we will see more high school guys go to college, but nobody knows for you know I don't think it's going to be as drastic and we won't know for sure how many really until July 13th.
3: And what you're really going to see I also think is you're going to, when you get down to it, you're going to find out who is ready and wants to play pro ball and who is set on going to college, whereas before a guy might have been like, "You know what? I really like to go to college, but you know what? 2 million dollars is pretty good. I can always go to college later."
0: yeah that, I don't know how often that does happen, but I do think you're going to have like you said, Jim. I think it's going to be uh, cumulative I think you might have five ten players a year who get who in the past would have gone to college, but the money was just too great mm-hmm. for the most part, those guys maybe said they wanted to go to college, but they didn't really want sure. to go to college sure is a yeah. front but cumulatively cumulatively after two or three years, what you should see is the college class of the twenty fifteen of twenty fifteen should be a lot stronger the college class of 2012. There should be more talent mm-hmm. in college baseball three years from now because of these changes, don't you think?
1: I, I totally agree with that. And, you know, we, you and I talk about this all the time, John, that I think one of the reasons, especially if you talk to older scouts and they're decrying the college classes, it's because the teams are so aggressive at signing players out of high school that depletes the college classes before, you know, before it happens. And I think what we see this year, and you know, next year's college crop is better than this year's college crop, but I think 2015 is probably going to have – I'd say conservatively, at least a couple dozen, maybe three dozen players who might have signed under the old system who decide not to this year. I mean, I still think, you know, if you want to play pro ball, you know, and you wanted a million dollars and somebody can only give you $750, you are still going to go play pro ball. Right. Um, I don't think, you know, I, I do think what well, Nathan was alluding to. I think a lot of these a lot of guys, I don't think there's too many guys on the fence. With the draft, you know, I mean, where where the money's going to swim one way or the other. I think at heart, a lot of these kids, you know, want to come out and play pro ball at 18 or 19 years old. They know they think they're ready. They want to go or or in their heart, they think, you know what? I'd like to go to college for three years and we'll see. You know, the money, it's an interesting situation in that you don't have the freedom to do whatever you wanted like you did in the past. But the pick values are about 50 percent higher than the old slots used to be. So, it's not like you're talking that they're going to have, it's not like they're enforcing the slots, which were unrealistic, were determined unilaterally by MLB, and weren't reflective of the market. The pick values are, you know, it's not a free market, but they're more reflective of what guys were getting in the past. I think, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I know last year I think there's something like 53 players got a million dollars in the draft, uh, you know, total. This year, I think uh, there's something like 50. Play 50 pick values that are worth a million dollars. That's a lot more reflective. You know, last year there were less than 30 slots that were worth a million dollars. So I do think the pick values are more realistic. You're just not. What's going to happen is is maybe you know maybe guys go to different teams. You're not going to be able to play the game where you, you, there's a team lying in the weeds willing to pay you a million and a half dollars if you get to them in the third or fourth round. That team's not going to be able to do that anymore. But maybe there's another team that'll take you to the end of the sandwich round and find a way to give you a million and a half or 1.25. So it, it'll be interesting. That's, that's the one thing I really don't have a great feel for. I don't think anybody does, is there will be more high school guys going to college, more of these what I call second-tier players, guys who aren't going in the first round or the sandwich round. But how many is it going to be? I don't think it's going to be 75 to 100. It, it might be more like 25.
0: Jim, uh, last thing before I let you go, it's personal cheese ball time. <laughs> um, we've got our top 100. We've got 31 picks in the first round this year, so um, which still seems ridiculous. That there's so many first round picks, but whatever. I'm an old man.
2: Yeah, my day
0: there were 26. <laughs> um, but I do want to ask you, outside of the top 31, who's your personal cheese ball, whether it's a guy who's in, elsewhere in our top 100 if you want to go way off the board? Is there a guy who you think has the potential to jump up
1: into that first
0: round uh, who's not presently ranked in our first round?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I think that this guy. I don't think it's so much that we've undervalued him, but I just think that there's a number of circumstances. The guy who jumped out when I, when I knew we were going to be discussing that and I was just working on our college All-America team, honestly, was Nolan Sandburn. Um, he's a draft-eligible sophomore, but the indications I gave him, he wants to sign. I don't think he's going to be playing this if I don't get big money. I'm going back for my junior year. And I think what helps a guy like Nolan Sandburn is a number of factors. He's a relief pitcher, so he can get to the big leagues pretty quick. Had a great fall. I mean, he was throwing 92, 96, hitting a lot of 98s. The breaking ball looked really good in the fall. This is a guy who's going to move quickly. And also, you know, let's say we have him accurately ranked that he's the, you know, we have him at 43 right now, but he's the 43rd best player in the country. Well, you're going to see a lot of deals cut in this year's draft. And what might be attractive to a team that's, say, picking around, say, 20, is so maybe you cut a deal with Nolan Sandburn where, you know, right now, the, the pick value at, at 43 Uh, I'm I'm sorry, the the pick value at 20 is going to be a lot higher than the pick value at 43. And maybe you split the difference with it and then save money to give to a different guy. So I I think he's attractive in in that he's a guy who can get there quickly. I I do think you might see some college relievers. R.J. Alvarez is another one who, who, you know, guys who can move quick, get pushed up in the draft, sign a little bit of a discount, and then teams can use that money elsewhere.
0: R.J. Alvarez is the Ryan Perry of this draft. He throws really hard. He's been very good in the Cape. And he's a middle reliever on his own college team. He doesn't even close. Ryan Perry was the same thing at Arizona. He was not he was good in the Cape, but he did not start at Arizona and he did not close. He's set up. And that's the role Ford Atlantic has RJ Alvarez in right now. He's the setup guy. And he's a fascinating guy for me to watch this year. He's not my pick to click, but uh or my personal cheese bubble. We'll, we'll get to more of those in a minute. But Jim I wanted to thank you for coming on. I know we should let you go. Uh, any final thoughts you had on the draft class? You wanted to make sure you got into the podcast.
1: Um, no, I, I just think I, I think the, the CBA is the big X factor here, and it's going to be very interesting because I don't think you know th- there's a lot of opinions right now, but but nobody has very much certainty how this is going to play out. Um, you know, I do think you know MLB at least you know, line, MLB want these changes to save money. Publicly, they'll talk about you know competitive balance, and they want to make sure you know people are being drafted on ability over signability. And I do think there will be more of that, but signability is more important than ever because you you really have to know for sure what you're paying guys when you draft them now because if you're looking to move money around and shift it to another player, you can't think you're going to sign your first-round pick for a couple hundred thousand under slot or five hundred thousand – I mean, a couple hundred thousand under pick value or five hundred thousand under pick value. You have to know because if he holds out and you can't get that deal done, then you can't get your other deals done. So I I do think teams – we'll really be trying to pin down signability. And even though it's against baseball rules and it's against the ridiculous NCAA rules of using advisors, I think teams are going to be trying to cut more pre-draft deals than ever. not necessarily even at a discount, but just so you know exactly what you're paying guys. So then you can know what you can pay the the, the picks that come afterwards.
0: I agree. And then we've got some static there. probably tells us it's time to go. Jim, thanks for being on the, on the podcast with us and, uh, We'll talk more, obviously, this spring as the draft goes on.
1: I'm sure we have many more draft podcasts in our future. Take care, guys. All right. See hey, you, Jim. Jim.
0: We're back on the Baseball America podcast and talking with Connor Glassy and Nathan Rody a little bit about, more about the high school class guys. And I think one of the points you made, actually, Connor, in our show notes, which I don't usually do show notes, but you did, so I appreciate that. Um, it's a good year for power arms, but I do think that's typical. But it does seem like the other thing that's always typical for me is uh, – The high school class is where you find athletic outfielders, not the college class, as I wrote about. Um, But there's also some high school catchers in this draft. Talk a little bit about the strengths of the high school class. And, and, and Nathan, if you can also maybe hit on some of – expound upon maybe some of the areas where you think the high school class is maybe deficient compared to where it usually has been. One thing on the college side that we didn't talk about, there are no left-handers on the College All-America teams except for Brian Johnson. Like the the high school's – fill in that deficit in the draft class,
2: yeah, well, I mean the first question is is uh about the catchers it's it's actually just a good year for catchers in general um the last time that there was you know three catchers drafted in the uh in the top half of the first round was uh two thousand eight i think with uh Posey. Castro and Skipworth, was that a That sounds about right. Yeah, and, and this year, you know, you've got Mike Zunino up there. He's one of the top five guys that we talked about. And then um, on the high school side, Striker Trahan, who, you know, we bumped way up our list just because we've got him at number 12 on the on the top 100. And that's just because uh, he's big, he's physical. I mean, he's built like a fullback, but he moves. He You don't see guys with his – size usually run that fast and, and he you he know he's plus times down the line yeah he he's a he's a i would say maybe a, a solid average runner it sometimes he'll show you plus but that's excellent for a catcher mm-hmm. and then he's also you know he has big strong hands he receives well behind the plate um he's been catching his whole life and he also has some thunder in his bat from the left side he gets good loft uh he shows a patient approach at the plate and he you know, shows the ability to hit for average as well. So he's a, just a really interesting package, especially when you, you know, put it back there behind the plate. Um, you know, th- there's a lot of power arms in this class. We've mentioned that that, that seems typical. But like John said up, you know, there aren't very many left-handers on the college side. Well, <laughs> there's some really good left-handers on the high school go- on the high school side.
3: Yeah, there's some good left-handers, but I think uh, I think there's a Clear, you know, three left-handers on the high school side that we're talking about early round pick. And then after that, it is kind of wide open. So I don't know if they they necessarily fill that hole or that deficiency like John was saying. However, Max Fried, Hunter Verant, and Nathan Kirby are, you know. And Matt moral. And Matt's moral. Thank you. Yeah. So you got four guys. So I don't know if we're quite talking about, you know, in 2009, right? Yeah, 2009 when we had Matzik, Perk. You know that kind of uh, you know level of left-handed pitching, but it's still pretty good. You know, Max Freed is clearly at the front of that uh, crop right now, you know, with Matt Smorrell kind of sneaking up on his heels. But uh, Freed is another guy that, like we were talking about with Giolito, that really took a step forward in the off-season because Freed m- moved from Montclair Prep to Harvard Westlake because Montclair Prep uh, dropped their entire athletic program. So he's at Harvard Westlake now with Giolito doing the same throwing program, long tossing, uh, and that has really helped his stuff take a step forward. Whereas last summer, we were looking at him as a guy, you know, your typical high school left-hander. He's sitting in the high 80s, 90 range, and he's touching 91, 92 frequently. Uh, You know, it's not like maxing out for him, but... Now, it sounds like he's kind of sitting 89, 93, 94, maybe sitting 90 to 94, and he's still got that projectable frame, and there's still room for him to fill out. So you can hopefully think that there's even more velocity in there from the left side. And then he has you know good secondary stuff, and you know he's pitching in Southern California, so it's going to be against good competition. Smoral, big... Big physical left-hander. Kind of comes at you from a, a three-quarter slot, so it might be a little hard to pick up. I don't think he's quite, you know, Madison Bumgarner, but it, it's in that range. He's not an over-the-top or high three-quarter guy uh, with a good fastball sitting in the low 90s and a Wipe out slider.
0: Does he milk cows like uh, Madison Bumgarner? Does he have a little I strong hand? Don't think so. <laughs> that's that's a key. I think to Mad Bum's uh, powers. Right. They're both committed to North Carolina. There's mm-hmm. a, that's right. And then obviously Bumgarner did not quite follow through on that, but he had good reason not to.
3: Sure. <laughs> and then you got Hunter Verant, uh, who was kind of more your typical high school left-hander, 88, 92 type guy. Um, but the interesting thing about him is that he is very inexperienced in pitching. He's only been pitching, you know, for a couple of years now. So there's a lot of projection with him, but you're still getting a very nice base package to work with. And then Nathan Kirby, who is a personal favorite of mine because he hails from the state of Virginia. And his name is Nathan. And his name is Nathan. Uh, But he was a guy that we saw last summer that was kind of just average, and then we saw him in the fall, and it looked like he took a step forward. 89-92, downhill, good frame, projection remaining. Uh, but the curveball for him is really taking that step forward. It's a really sharp, biting, downward curveball that he keeps in the bottom of the strike zone, and it's definitely an out pitch for him. And you know, the changeup is coming along like it is for most high schoolers. So definitely, uh, the high school left-handed group is good and probably makes up a little bit for you know the lack on the college side.
0: Here's one other uh, question before we get to personal cheese balls, uh, Nathan and Connor. Both of you guys can talk about this. Last year, one of the storylines was the unusual um, places where we found high draft prospects. Whether it was Wyoming, Illinois, whatever. Um, where are the hot spots this year? And uh, you know, I guess Connor, you want you want to take this first. Your you're Arnold Horshack and get you jumping out of your seat here. That's a welcome back, Cotter reference. Lost on younger you're viewers. <laughs> I am. Um, but where are the hot spots? You know, Is there a northern guy like Charlie Tilson this year or like Tyler Beattie? Who are those high guys for this year?
2: Well, I'll actually let Nathan handle some of the high school guys. What I wanted to say is that the unusual guys this year are the college guys. We, there's a lot of guys in, in our overall top 100 from small schools. I mean, Georgia Southern has two guys on there way up at the top, obviously, with Chris Beck and Victor Roach. Duke has a guy, Marcus Stroman, uh Travis Jankowski at Stony Brook, who we all, already touched on. Adam Brett Walker at Jacksonville. I mean, the the top 100 list just has a lot of guys from schools that you normally don't see uh, top picks coming from. So that's the interesting thing for me from a, a unusual standpoint. Um, on on the high school side, it seems like it's a little more typical this year. You know, Florida's strong. Southern California's strong. Uh, Texas, there's is Texas. Strong yeah, Jordan. obviously. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anybody that, uh, that that jumps out on the high school side. Carlos Correa is interesting as a as a you yeah, know, guy from Puerto Rico, first round shortstop from from Puerto Rico. Um,
3: you got you got your typical you know there's a Northwest guy in Carson Kelly, uh, you know there there's good baseball in Northwest uh, and maybe not a hotbed, but you know he he's the guy out of the Northwest this year, uh, and then Rhett Wiseman in the Northeast. He's really raw, um, but he's got a lot of. He's very physical. Um, You know, there's some swing and miss to him, but he is, you know, from the Northeast, so some of that you kind of, you know, expect. But he goes to a high school that, you know, it's Will Lingo's favorite high school in the country, I think. It's more like a law firm in Buckingham, Brown, and Nichols. Uh, So (laughs) it's kind of interesting there. And then you got a guy out of Oklahoma this year with Ty Hensley. Uh, and then you know Alabama and Mississippi's throwing some guys in that high range there, so probably it's a not as more- good as
0: last year though. Louisiana looks like it's a lot better this year than it was yes. last year. Louisiana's so, up, but Alabama and Mississippi were epic last year. I mean, true. They were both four stars. True. Ohio has a has its recent tradition of mm-hmm. pitchers that it's sent to the big leagues, whether it's Chad Billingsley and John Neese or mm-hmm. uh, you know Eric Serkamp. Uh Obviously Andrew Brackman hasn't quite made it yet. Um, But, yeah, Ohio has been pretty good lately. The the hotbed you kind of talked about to me that's interesting is Puerto Rico. This has been all this stuff in the New York Times. When the New York Times does a story, people talk about it, and they did this recent story that I thought was kind of bunk on Puerto Rico. I'm really tired of everyone blaming the draft for ruining Puerto Rico's town. There are a lot of other changes that have happened in Puerto Rico, and Puerto Rico should be in the draft because it's part of the United States and they have a much better education system and infrastructure than the Dominican Republic. That said, they did not – Have the high school baseball infrastructure when the draft came to Puerto Rico to cover that gap from age 16 when they used to be able to sign to age 18. So there was an interruption there, but I do think we've seen. I think the the talent in Puerto Rico is is trending back upward, and I'm really intrigued by Correa, guys, because he sounds like. I mean, people don't think about you know Francisco Lindor was Puerto Rican, Mm -hmm. Javier Baez is Puerto Rican, correct? I mean these guys. I know Francisco Lindor is. He moved from Puerto Rico. He was 12 years old. Uh, Felipe Lopez was, another, was a Puerto Rican guy who moved to the United States. So you know, if, if, I'm sorry that we don't get to count them for Puerto Rico, but Puerto Rico still producing mm-hmm. baseball talent. And Correa sounds like the upside sounds like pretty significant with him, Nathan. It looks and that, like a big
3: league shortstop right now. <laughs> the, I
0: guess the, really the question with him is will he stay at shortstop? What is, it, what, what is, his, is that the only negative with him? Because otherwise it seems like he would rank even. And, and also I'm wondering, is he the best – Prospect high school prospect out of Puerto Rico since when? Alex Rios? Alex Rios was nineteen ninety nine draft. talk a little bit about Correa because I think he's a pretty significant guy.
3: He certainly is. You know, he's got a big league body right now. So like if you if you line him up with a twenty five man roster, he would not stand out as being young or projectable or anything like that. He's a he's a big kid and it's a big league body. Uh, So that's automatically going to lead to the question of, is he going to stay at shortstop? He can stay there now. He's got good actions. He's got the range to uh, play there now. It's just a matter of how is his body going to grow. And the default answer is he's going to move because, you know, he's 18 years old or 17 years old, and he's going to grow and get bigger and slow down. But you don't know that for certain. You know, maybe his body now is what it is, and maybe he's just going to have better strength or, you know, make uh the strength is gonna be better distributed through his body as he gets on to, you know, workout programs that are, you know, better for Pro Ball or what have you. But if he does have to move off to shortstop, I think logically he moves right to third base, which still has defensive value, and his bat, I believe, is gonna profile there so he 's got power he 's a big kid he 's strong he can hit you know he 's still working on a little bit of the the off speed recognition, but you know what high school player do we not talk about that with so really, the only knock is that he might move, but i don 't think it 's going to kill his value at all
2: yeah that that you you nailed it right there i mean that 's pretty much exactly what I was going to say, and it 's probably because we hang out all the time but uh <laughs> <laughs> uh Let's, uh, l- I guess that let's. A let's... I, I, that's a
0: good way to transition. You guys hang out all the time, so you have to have different personal cheese balls. Yes. So I'm going to give my personal cheese ball and let you guys, uh, hopefully have different personal cheese balls. But, uh, we're basically talking about guys who are outside the top 31 who we think could break into it. And Aaron Fitt and I are on the bet board for this one, so I'll just make my pick obvious. I did go see him last spring, and he wasn't even that good. Uh, but I'm still going to say Pat Light, uh, the right hander at Monmouth. Um, He's got a big number from the Major League Scouting Bureau. He's had a big number with a radar gun. He throws hard. Uh, But for me, uh, I like the northern college pitcher profile. I like the fresh arm. Um, I like the fact that he's a a program in Monmouth where a couple of these guys, where it's Ryan Buke or uh, Brad Brack, whose name is way too much fun to say, um, those guys have had nice pro careers recently. He's got more talent than either of those guys. I, I happen to think that, you know, he can learn something from those those guys and and be prepared to handle the the, the exposure he's going to get this year. And you know, I want to see that guy step forward and dominate. But if that guy does step forward and have big numbers in college this year, if he does pitch well, he does dominate that level of competition. I guess they're in the Northeast Conference, not a very high level. We'll see him here in mid-February, Monmouth is opening you know, opening weekend, yeah, opening weekend down at the USA Baseball Complex. I think that he's a guy who could really jump up. And the other guy who was my cheese ball, and I'm I'm blanking on it, but I had two I want to talk about. Oh, it was just Lex Rutledge. Uh, I liked Lex out of high school three years ago. Um, He was a late pop-up guy. He was not a showcase guy. I think he's still pretty raw. Um, I think, like Jim said before, college closers are going to fly off the board. Uh, Here's a left-handed power arm. Uh, He's been up to 97 as a reliever. Personally, I think that someone's going to draft him and try to start him. I think that he started some last year. He had very mixed reviews. Uh, I I like the Sanford coaching staff, and they're doing a great job. That program is really on the rise. But the pro team will have more time to work with Lex Rutledge on his mechanics, work with that arm. I don't think there's anything that I've been told in his delivery or the effort in his delivery that can't be smoothed out a little bit. It's not like he's J.J. Cooper in terms of his pitching mechanics. (laughs) If you went on our Facebook page at the winter meetings, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, that was that was, that was was Kevin Apier-esque, as, Jim, as uh, Will Lingo has put it. And Kevin Apier actually had a nice long career. Maybe J.J. should have given it the world, But I think Lex Rutledge will be a guy who's going to be given a chance to start. To me, he's kind of like a left-handed Chad Bettis almost. And the Rockies will be a, a team where they've had Chad Bettis was the one dude, the one domestic dude that the Rockies have developed well recently uh, on the pitching side. Uh, Lex Rutledge, to me, is the kind of guy who's been a college reliever, had, had some flashes as a starter. I think he could be a pro starter a lefty power arm, Connor. To me, those two guys stand out, and but I do think Jim is right. Some college closers are going to go uh, quick. Um, so those are my two. I had to pick college guys. A rep for Aaron, since he's not here. Sure. Pat Light would definitely not be one of Aaron's picks. I'm not sure who Aaron's <laughs> pick is, but I know that Lex Rutledge would be in the in the. I, I actually think that Aaron's pick would actually be a, a Nolan Sanburn, who Jim already picked. I think that would have been one of one of Aaron's picks. Um, but Connor, who, who are your personal cheese balls here for the 2012 draft guys, again, that we're not projecting to go in the first round right now, but who you think could go, or even if they don't go in the first round, you still think are going to be pretty, uh, pretty good, a uh, couple years out.
2: Well, Ole Miss isn't going to like to hear my answer because they already have two guys that we already have projected as first rounders with striker Trahan, who I talked about earlier and Gavin Cicchini, who we've talked about a lot, but, uh, the guy I like is, is Ty Hensley. And, uh, you know, we mentioned Oklahoma. If he, if he were to go in the first round, to give Oklahoma a first-round pitcher three of the last four years. Um, Hensley, he's big. He's physical. He's 6'5", 220. He has good stuff. Fastball, you know, we've seen up to 95, a tight curveball. And he has good bloodlines. I mean, his dad was a second-round pick, you know, played three years in, in the minor leagues, and then went on to coaching um, a couple years at or- Oral Roberts and then I think eight years at Kansas State. So Ty Hensley's grown up around the game. Uh, he has what you look for in, like, a workhorse starter, and he's he's got great makeup. He's a great kid. Mm-hmm. Um, so mentally I, he's there. Yeah, I really like Ty Hensley. What about you, Nathan?
3: Well, first of all, I'm going to defend ourselves a little bit and say that, yes, we do hang out a lot, but we actually really do happen to disagree on players a lot more than people would think. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to cheat a little bit, and I'm going to take two players. But it's a hitter and it's a pitcher. But number one for me is going to be Rio Ruiz. I've been on this guy since I met him last summer. Uh, I know he's been kind of a name in showcase ball, so he, he's not by all means you know, a pop-up guy or anything like that, but I've been sold on him as a hitter since I met him because from the moment I shook his hand. Because on the 20-80 scale, it's an 80 handshake. He's got big, strong hands, strong forearms, and that's the kind of thing you need for back control, which can lead to you know advanced hitting ability. It's something I think Ruiz has. To go with as well his plus raw power uh the fact that he plays third base he's got a you know good body on him physical kid cuz he plays football too he's a good athlete you know he's the star quarterback at Bishop of Mott. had a little bit of an injury scare this year at football so maybe that's going to get into his head and he want to focus on baseball a little more but if he does end up at Southern California uh he's told us that he you know wants to play and that he's been told he can play whether it be quarterback safety corner we don't know yet. Uh, so I really like him for his physicality, his power, his position being a third baseman. I think he's a, a fine enough defender there. It's by no means gold glove, but, you know, you don't need that. And he's got a strong arm, too. He pitches off the mound. He's 90-93 with a plus slider. Mm-hmm. So he's just a good all-around player, uh, and I, I like his outlook. And then for me, the pitcher is Mitchell Traver. Uh, you know, he's a little further down our list. Uh I guess the three outings that I've seen from him have been the best three outings of his career. <laughs> um but uh for me it, it's good. It's he's six foot seven, two hundred and thirty odd pounds, you know, it's just a big physical guy, you know, kinda looks like the workhorse mold, but he's just a power armed right hander. I've seen him sitting ninety to ninety four with really good life. There's a lot of run and sink to his fastball, which, you know, breaks a lot of bats, gets a lot of ground balls, and then the curveball We saw it early on was a good curveball and, you know, it flashed plus at times. But then when the one we saw in Jupiter was one of the best curveballs I've seen since going on the showcase circuit. Very rarely do you see a good high school hitter at the plate screw himself into the ground because the curveball fooled him so badly. Yeah,
2: he might, you know, break a hitter's foot when they swing through strike three.
3: (laughs) It's absolutely true. So that, uh, you know, for me are Ruiz and Traver. Traver, I'm probably the high man on in the industry. Uh, but you know he's really good. Life on the fastball, good breaking ball, and just a big physical body.
0: I hope that other scouts hold you to that. You're the high <laughs> man in the industry, Nathan Rodie. You're the high man in the office. We love Nathan Rodie and Connor Glassie because of the work they put in and the how much they went and saw these guys. And uh, I don't, I don't think many people who listen to this subscribe to Prospects Plus. But if you do, you're going to get uh. Well, first off, I'm mean, going to apologize to you for the last six months that we haven't updated it the way we should. But you're about to get rewarded for that patience. And uh, we've already got, like I said, our early draft preview. Top 100 with scouting reports for for, uh, for subscribers, which I don't believe we've ever done this early in the year. Not early, no. I don't think we've ever done that in January and February. We've had 100 scouting reports. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. And the high school ones are pretty much all fresh, correct? Mm -hmm. These are all stuff that just taken from the off-season. And all the college ones are stuff either we wrote about these guys last summer or they're updated. And that's new. And then on Prospects Plus, uh, we're going to have Top 100 High School and Top 100 College with scouting reports for both those, Mm -hmm. plus about 700, approximately, reports on high school-only players, Plus, again, if you're a subscriber just to Baseball America, you have all of last summer's Summer College League top 10 prospects. And if somebody's trying to tell you that there's 20 prospects or 25 prospects in the Coastal Plain League, they lie because there aren't. And so there's 10. We stop at 10, not because David Letterman made it popular, but because these Summer College League lists usually don't have more than 10. So uh, you need to be, it's like we talk about in the Prospect Handbook, it's a realistic ceiling. So I think there's a realistic ceiling to a lot of these leagues, and and you know we're ranking. So we're going to have basically have reports at draft time, five hundred, six hundred, seven hundred reports on players. So we had last year, right? And there are going to be fewer than a thousand players drafted this year. We're only down to forty rounds. I guess actually there should be like twelve hundred players drafted, but mm-hmm. um, so my math was poor before. But <laughs> we're going to have reports on more than half of the players you get drafted, and. Uh, that's why subscribing to Baseball America makes a lot of sense. If you listen to the podcast and you like it, $66 a year for the online subscription. Baseballamerica.com slash store is the web address, or eight hundred eight four five two seven two six is the phone number to subscribe. So for Connor and Nathan, great job on the podcast. Thanks again to Jim Callis for coming on. I'm John Manuel. We're going to see you next time on the next Baseball America podcast. So long, everybody.